You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it, sir? Oh, going pretty well. Uh, We are just about to start spring break, so I'm looking forward to a week without commuting. Me too. It looks like our spring breaks uh, align this year. How fortuitous. Indeed, indeed. I mean, it's not like I'm going to Georgia or anything. I'm just going to stay home and, you know, hope that coronavirus doesn't get me. But, but, but I mean, it's neat, nonetheless. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going anywhere in particular either. But uh, to be able to stay home, do some writing, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I told my freshman composition students that, and they said, you mean when you get a break, you write? <laughs> And at that point, you grew antennae and, like, a third eye. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, not with us this week is Michael Farmer. Uh, he's, well, as we say in the South, he's all covered up. So, uh, it's just you and me, man. Right on. What's on the network? Got a number of episodes coming your way. First of all, the Christian Feminist Podcast has a new episode on... Sarah Connor, uh, the character from the Terminator franchise, so uh, I'm looking forward to digging into that. Uh, There's also a pair of City of Man podcasts, one on really kind of revisiting their original pair of episodes on uh, liberalism and conservatism. So this pair, one of them is a further uh, investigation of the philosophy of John Rawls, and the other one is an investigation of the national conservative movement. Uh, So those stand to be pretty good. Oh, goodness. There was another one, David, and I I just blanked out on what the third one is. Ah! Uh, Before They Were Live has a new episode on The Little Mermaid. (laughs) And listeners, I apologize for that glossolalia, but uh, the concept occurred to me, but not the uh, sign. (laughs) I mean, you know, how often in the day do you get to deploy mermaid yeah like, that, there you go there you go it's probably the first time i've said that today so <laughs> um are there any other recent episodes we need to point to david uh you mentioned we're still working through the republic i did not so you won't you go ahead and mention that <laughs> i i think by that point uh book nine will have dropped yes Is indeed that... all right i can't even remember who's on that one i might be i don't know yeah, I'm going to find out when I uh, update the uh, RSS feed. <laughs> well, mysterious persons, as yet unknown, will be discussing Book Nine of the Republic. Uh, 
in the in the future time for us that is the past time for you well today we are talking about uh, a very 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 old book which uh, is one of our um, uh, it's it's in our wheelhouse as they say and this particular book uh, would you call it a book shorter than a book essay treatise I mean in the ancient world this is a book yeah okay uh, it is Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, and uh, his his little book, "The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching," um, which, given some of the things that he says at the very beginning, um, we might it, it might just as well have been uh, you know called called something like an Enchiridion or a handbook. So, yeah. Before we dig into it, uh, what should we be th knowing about this uh, Irenaeus fellow? The sorts of things that he wrote, and uh, the sorts of the sort of thing that this treatise is that we're reading. Well, a lot of churches talk about apostolic succession, and uh, Irenaeus is someone who can claim it in a very direct manner. Uh, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, uh, who in turn was the disciple of John. Uh, from the gospel of the same name, who in turn was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, now, historians have disputed all sorts of things. I'm not going to worry about that. But, uh, you know, what we do get with Irenaeus is someone with a very direct descent of teaching. Uh, he's active in the uh, 2nd century AD. Uh, he's born in Smyrna, which is uh, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, by the time he becomes a bishop and, you know, we become aware of him historically, uh, he has relocated to Lyon, France, uh, which at the time was Gaul, but you know how that works. Uh, <laughs> he is a bishop, this is the interesting bit, during the persecution of Christians under Marcus Aurelius. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, we get uh, sort of the propaganda version of Marcus Aurelius, uh, frankly, the version that he presents of himself in the Meditations. Uh, of, you know, this very reflective, peaceful sort of emperor. Uh, but he was also a persecutor of Christians, so we shouldn't forget that. Uh, and the big uh, heresy of the day, uh, and, you know, I, I had a beloved uh, church history professor in undergrad, Craig Farmer, uh, who said that the reason we study church history is so that we can name our heresies. Uh, the big heresy of the day was Gnosticism, and so... His most famous work is Against Heresies, and it largely takes aim at Valentinus, or Valentinius, I forget how many eyes are in there, uh, and the Gnostic doctrines that he teaches. And I appreciate that book in particular because it actually gives Gnosticism some content uh, rather than just making it an all-purpose uh, you know, devil term to throw at your theological foes. Uh, yeah. The Gnostics actually thought and wrote and taught certain things, and we should remember that historically. Uh, David, I mean, what other uh, details about Irenaeus would our listeners benefit from? I know that he's he's historically important uh, in in the development of, of uh, development of ecclesiology or the theology of what the church is and how it ought to function. Also historically important in the development of the canon. Um, in particular, he's one of the earliest witnesses to a fourfold gospel. Um, he's also one of the uh, early, uh, earliest uh, 
developed users of the uh, of the notion of, a, of of Episcopal succession from the apostles as a marker of the true church. Um, a, f a few other things that he's kind of noted as being um, uh, an early or in some cases earliest witness that we've got. Um, and a lot of it is from uh, against heresies or, you know, the big rainy day book of Gnostics. Um, it's it's just an absolutely enormous work. I, I found an audio, a free audio version of it on LibriVox, and I downloaded the whole thing. It was so many files, and I was I put so many hours into listening to it. I had to put it down to do other things, and I'd completely lost the thread and realized I was going to have to start over again from the beginning and just gave up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's so enormous. Um, and in a lot of cases... Um, all we know about some of the Gnostics, and all that was known about many Gnostics until the discoveries of, of things like the Nag Hammadi Library. Um, all that was known about Gnostics was what was preserved in Irenaeus's text. And so for a, a very long time, um, whether the Gnostics were as Irenaeus presented them, whether he was mostly polemical or uh, or propagandist in the way that he presented the Gnostics was something that was discussed. Um, and I imagine that's probably something that, that still is part of the conversation of Irenaeus in relationship to Gnosticism. But um, one of the things that uh, has been found is that some of the books that he names um, and quotes from or summarizes content from, some of those books were later found. And the sorts of things that he said about those books um, match the description of what's there. Um, maybe he was selecting the quotes that were most useful for him in his arguments, uh, but it looks as if, you know, at least in the stuff that we can pin him down on um, and find other sources, he wasn't completely making things up. So, right, so even if it was yeah. selective quotation, it was still precise quotation. Right, like that Gospel of Judas um, that there was all the hullabaloo about, um, oh gosh, was that ten years ago more? Oh, I'm getting like old, that. David. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Irenaeus alluded to it, and then and then when they found it, it was like gasp, this undiscovered thing. And uh, when all the news stories were cycling about it, I just remembered thinking, oh, Irenaeus has already given us things to say. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, that's 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 our guy. But this time, he's not talking about heresies. Uh, instead, he's mainly interested in uh, what he considers to be the truth and uh, the faith delivered by the apostles to the church. So, especially at the very beginning of this treatise, uh, when he talks about truth and when he talks about faith, um, what are those things? What is their content? How do they relate to our soul? And he brings baptism into it, so I guess we should eventually as well, too, right? Oh, certainly, certainly. This is an interesting period, uh, especially from our perspective, because uh, as people often note, this is the era before there is a universal New Testament canon, though all, as uh, David already noted, I mean, you know, Irenaeus does name four Gospels uh, that are valid to be 
uh, read in the assembly. Uh, it's also a time when we don't have the creeds that are our most uh, commonly recited uh, in our assemblies now. The, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, I like that last one just because I like to say that many syllables at once. Uh, but instead, what we get is reference over and over in Irenaeus to a rule of faith. And what that rule of faith seems to be uh, is, you know, a boundary, if you will. If you are talking in these ways, then you are proclaiming the truth of Christ. And if you are saying things that are opposed to these things, then you have broken the rule of faith and therefore you are teaching heresy. Uh, and so heresy becomes uh, really a matter of faithfully transmitting or opposing or unfaithfully transmitting. Those seem to be the big uh, possibilities. Uh, the content of a, a fairly well-defined body of doctrine. Uh, and so, you know, what's interesting, you know, is to look at it from a, a late modern perspective like ours. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll talk about truth in terms of uh, correspondence, right? You know, does the way that we talk about this uh, match up with, you know, what you would see if you, like Job, looked in on the heavenly throne room? Uh, he seems to be a lot more earthly about it. Uh, it's a matter of, are you faithfully handing down uh, the content of the confession that was given by the apostles? Um, so, you know, the faith is the rule of faith, is the content of that. Incidentally, uh, this is the connotation of faith that we get in a letter like Jude, uh, where it says, you know, uh, to uh, hand, hand the faith, ah, and I can't remember the phrase now, I should have looked this up before I recorded, but if you read Jude, you'll see the word faith used in that in that same connotation. Um, the faith once delivered to the saints. That's like the that. one. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and so again, there we're not talking about an existential disposition that we can talk about, you know, as fluctuating within the lifespan of an individual, you know, among the worshiping assembly. But instead, we're talking about, you know, content, uh, narrative content, symbolic content all those sorts of things. Uh, now, when it comes to baptism, uh, what's interesting is we get uh, a discussion of something that, you know, theology later on will talk about as the economic trinity. So, I mean, we talk about uh, the imminent trinity, which is the relationship of God and God's self. And then we talk about the economic trinity, the trinity uh, as relates to the faithful. And here... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and quote it at some length here. Uh, the baptism of our regeneration proceeds through these three points. God the Father bestowing on us regeneration through his Son by the Holy Spirit. For as many as carry in them the Spirit of God are led to the Word, that is to the Son, and the Son brings them to the Father, and the Father causes them to possess incorruption. So if you're familiar with the text of the Gospel of John, you're hearing a lot of echoes there. Uh, not a big uh, coincidence since, you know, Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn is a disciple of John. Uh, but, you know, what we get is uh, not the label economic trinity, but certainly uh, a discussion of the three persons of the trinity uh, that, you know, in retrospect, we can call that economic trinity. So, David, I mean, you know, what, what else is going on here with truth and with faith? He's got this really interesting parallel between purity of the body kept from the sins of the body and 
faith or truth, he uses them almost uh, almost indistinguishably um, in the soul, so right, that right. Uh, so that f- that purity becomes purity and truth become um, mar- uh, markers of a kind of uh, a content, a status. It's 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 a fact about you. It's less about a disposition of of will or desire more that you know this is a soul this is a soul that has truth in it and therefore has and and that it believes and therefore has faith or this is a body that has purity and therefore has been um, kept from uh, the taint of fleshly desire Right, yeah. right. So, I mean, if if I can expand on that, David, you know, I don't think that he would he would object to uh, people examining themselves for their disposition toward God. Uh, but for him, he would probably use a different noun to describe that disposition. Faith is simply the content of the rule of faith. Yes. Yeah. So, so there, I I think there is in the within the treatise overall. Um, additional notions uh, or, or the, the sort of complementary notions of things like faithfulness or trust or hope, um, the different kinds of shades of meaning that, 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 we, um, that I think we find in the uses of the word faith in the apostolic writings. Um, but the one that he's mainly focused on is faith as this deposit which is passed down from the apostles and which our teaching needs to be um, in harmony and in accord with in order for us to be faithful to um, to that to that handed down thing um, the other thing that I think is interesting just sort of building off of the of baptism is that uh, he he speaks of the the with baptism uh baptism is uh, a a a bringing us into the life of the holy spirit um the holy spirit without which it is possible to to behold the word of god without which it is possible to have knowledge of the father or the son um so that uh our baptism on one hand, is providing this formula, right? They're building on um, that that baptism formula that we see in Matthew 28, to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, that's not only giving shape to the way that he delivers this content, um, but also the baptism rite itself being identified with the work of the Holy Spirit in uh drawing and bringing knowledge of God, specifically God in Father and Son. Um, it, it's, it, I, I find it really interesting the way that he's, he's bringing out of this um, entrance rite into the Christian community um, both the form of the content and what seems to be a kind of epistemic condition of, of faithfully receiving the content. Right, right. It, it, I mean, it almost seems to be, and I, and I realize I'm making a, a chronological and an intellectual jump here, uh, but it kind of rhymes with what Jonathan Edwards is doing in a divine and supernatural light. 
yeah, I th I think that's I I think that's a good connection, but um I mean, you know, Ed Edwards might be, you know, kind of a, a modern English speaker's route into the notion of the necessity of divine illumination, but he's he's hardly the the only person to uh, to have written about it, and he's not the one who who came up with it. I, oh, I, sure, I think sure. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. it rhymes. <laughs> it rhymes with rhymes with. <laughs> yeah, I I just found that really really fascinating to see how how early this goes, and you know the role of baptismal formulas in in shaping the the very form of those creeds that you referred to earlier uh, like this is before those creeds are formed and yet you can see the shape that that trinitarian shape of the creed already in the way that um that Irenaeus encapsulates what he says this faith is right and a text this early i mean really does uh i'm going to be diplomatic and say call into question uh the sort of hellenization the uh thesis that you know so often gets uh, associated with Adolf von Harnack that we've got a sort of pristine Jewish Christianity that then gets corrupted by this you know Hellenization nonsense. Um, I mean you know if you look at this, I mean you know the Trinitarian formulas are no more than two or three generations removed from Jesus walking around Palestine. So you know I mean if it is a uh, a later imposition, it gets imposed awful quickly. <laughs> Those Hellenists, they just like they just swooped in. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Apostles the, the apostles weren't even cold yet. And here they are. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Hamlet. <laughs> uh Yeah. I it, 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 yeah. Let's talk about angels. Uh they have an interesting function in the early part of this treatise, and you're the Milton guy, so uh, I reckon you're the one to talk about the angels and such, uh, along with creation and fall. So how is Irenaeus's account of the angels resembling or diverging from other prominent, possibly Miltonian stories about angels and creations and falls? Well, I'm going to talk about Irenaeus, and I'm going to talk about Milton, and then I'm also going to talk about a middle term who is Origen. So let's start with Irenaeus. First of all, we've got this notion of uh, seven heavens, and you might think that the uh, seventh one is the sitcom from the 90s, but it's not. Um, <laughs> and neither is it the uh, Empyrean realm that Dante gives us. Uh, it's also not the shell that you know contains Saturn or any of that. Uh, the seventh heaven is actually the firmament, uh, that we get in Genesis 1. Uh, it is the place that, you know, where the lights in the sky reside and so on and so forth. So it's interesting. I mean, this seems to be almost a pre-Ptolemaic cosmology that he's working with. And then the other six heavens, as you descend to the first heaven, uh, they actually become basically invisible. Now, where angels fit into that uh, is, you know, the phrase that Irenaeus, Irenaeus uses here, and I didn't have a an occasion, David, to, to study the Greek text, so I'm going to be going off of English translation here. Uh, but the angels are powers of the persons of the Trinity. So powers, of course, is dunamis. Uh, this is, you know, the, the, the word that, you know, St. Paul uses uh, to describe, you know, one of the things that we are at war with. 
Uh, but in this case, you know, they are part of a, a, a celestial hierarchy uh, that, of course, you know, takes on various forms, uh, you know, perhaps most famously in, uh, if you're a Protestant, pseudo-Dionysius, if you're Orthodox, Dionysius the Areopagite. Um, but what's interesting is that there is uh, not what we post-Milton people would expect, namely a narrative of how some of these uh, powers became rebellious powers. Instead, Satan simply gets named as the apostate angel. Uh, the powers that are, you know, aligned with Satan, uh, you know, there's no narrative of a, a battle and a fall and so on and so forth. They are simply there in the story. I mean, which, you know, kind of reflects New Testament usage, so it's no big, uh, I guess, no big deficit there. Uh, now, the, the middle term, and this is why I wanted to talk about origin, uh, is that the earliest narrative account of the fall of the angels uh, and the most clear early identification of fallen angels and demons, as we see those terms used in the New Testament, that I'm aware of, and David, you can correct me on this if there's earlier texts that you can think of, uh, is Origen's fa uh, famous uh, polemical text, Contra Kelsum. Uh, Kelsum is an Ephesian philosopher, and, you know, Origen is presenting uh, in this kind of open letter polemic, apolog uh, apologetic, uh, a vision of the cosmic order that, you know, runs counter to Kelsus. Uh, and honestly, I, I should have looked this up too, David, but this week has been crazy. I can't remember with Kel whether Kelsus no would have been a Neoplatonist or a Stoic philosopher, but either way, he's going to differ from origin, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, for us, you know, who are on this side of Milton, we're going to miss that narrative. We're going to miss, you know, the, the personalities of the individual, uh, you know, demonic spirits. But what we will find, uh, you know, familiar uh, is that, you know, human beings are different from them uh, in that we were formed by the hands of God, uh, whereas the powers, you know, seem to be in almost a sort of, you know, early Neoplatonist manner. They are powers of God, you know, something perhaps analogous to emanations from God. Um, you know, what else is there to say here, David? Because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very reticent to attribute later categories to Irenaeus just because, you know, they come later. I'm also reticent to say he didn't have access to them because they might have been present but not extant to us. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean... If I remember rightly, um, powers is one of Paul's terms for... Yeah, yeah, I, th I believe I said that, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. So, you know... It, it, Our war is I, not I, against I, flesh and blood, but against powers and thrones and dominions and fruit bags yeah, so... and breakfast cereals and... <laughs> <laughs> so when it says that, uh, that they are powers... Um, did 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 you take that? I I know it's right after that he talks about the the Holy Spirit and then he's citing uh, I believe it's Isaiah um, talking about uh, a sevenfold yeah Isaiah a sevenfold spirit of God yes yes um, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't sure whether he was saying that these angels are are emanations in the way that you're saying or that like i said that's my temptation interpreting it i realize yeah. as i said it out loud i am imposing plotinus on irenaeus 
or that the <laughs> or that the notion of a plenitude of spiritual servitors for God is in some sense appropriate or warranted by this kind of plenitude of God. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I was kind of hard to. I, I wasn't really sure how 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 far to take that too. Um, he's also got this um, book of uh, sort of Nephilim material that that we associate with the Book of Enoch. Yes, yes, he certainly seems to be aware of those narratives. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I found it interesting that his fall of Satan seems to follow the temptation, not precede it. Yeah, talk talk a little bit more about that. Well, uh, it describes the. Uh, let me find the place real quick. Uh, Adam is is created, and then uh, there's uh, some some discussion of his status in the garden, of the commandment that God gives. Uh, this commandment the man kept not, this is paragraph 16, but was disobedient to God, uh, being led astray by the angel, who for the great gifts of God which he had given to man, was envious and jealous of him. And this is another um, uh, another tradition that you don't necessarily see in any of the biblical material that Christians source for their you know, understandings of angels, but... Um, I know it through the uh, uh, Islamic uh, legend that that Iblis or Satan falls because he is envious of God's elevation of Adam. Right, right, and that certainly seems to be whether it's derived from Irenaeus or derived from Muslim legend, something mm-hmm. that uh, you know appears in book, I want to say book two and book three of Paradise Lost. Right. Well, um, if I remember rightly, uh, the dates... So, demonstration of the apostolic preaching was known through references and people like Eusebius, but it wasn't discovered until mm, relatively historically recently. I want to say 19th oh, okay. century. Um, and it was in an Armenian translation. But yeah, that's right. I did read that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. But apparently Armenian and Greek are close enough that the the translation that we're looking at will sometimes infer based on I, I, I'm guessing inferring based on uh cognates or something like that, what the what what Irenaeus's Greek probably is. I, I, I don't always see that work played out in the footnotes, but there's frequent references to Greek vocabula- vocabulary in here, even though the introduction says right. Mean, and and one of those interesting places of, of linguistic overlap uh, is that you know Irenaeus, at least in this translation that we're using, uh, renders Hasatan as meaning not the accuser but the uh, apostate, uh, which you know is a very different uh, connotation of that. Now I you know I I'm I'm familiar with the Hebrew word. Uh, but as far as, you know, I think the Septuagint simply transliterates Satan into Sigma, Alpha, Tau, Alta, Alta, Alpha, Nu, uh, and then I'm not sure what Armenian does, but uh, but it's interesting that this, uh, I, I would call it, you know, a, a different etymology than usually gets put on the Hebrew Hasatan surfaces in at least this translation. Yeah. 
there's some interesting uses or I don't know misuses I don't know it well enough of of Hebrew in this treatise um, I would be interested uh, it would be interesting to 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 have the ability to know <laughs> how much Hebrew Irenaeus knew and how he learned it um, but he has this reference to Satan and uh, the the apostate as you as as, as you pointed out um, he is envious of man brought and both brought himself to naught brought him the angel brings himself to naught or nothing and made the man sinful persuading him to disobey the commandment of god so the angel becoming by his falsehood the author and originator of sin himself was struck down having offended against god and man he caused to be cast out from the par from paradise so at least based in the way that he phrases it it seems as if the fall of Satan and the fall of man are more or less at the same time. Although, uh, God cursed the serpent which carried and conveyed the slanderer, so that complicates right. the timeline. And also, there's the etymology of Hasatan that I learned. The one, you yeah. know, uh, the, the accuser <laughs> or the slanderer, right? But it's also, and this is, this is also, again... Uh, what makes me realize that, you know, it's a good thing that there are people who study lots of ancient languages. Um, that is also one of the common etymologies of the Greek diabolos or devil. Yeah. So, I mean, the, there seems to be some space uh, between the apostate, which is what, you know, Irenaeus seems to be, uh, you know, translating hasatan, and then slanderer, I imagine, although I... No, I don't have to imagine. There's a footnote. Uh, the... <laughs> Uh, he actually does use Diabolos there. So, you know, the, it, it's fascinating. I mean, he is working on, on a trilingual level here. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say uh, doing some shake and bake, but uh, that might just be me. <laughs> you know, let's be charitable to our long, 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 long dead big brother and say maybe he doesn't have necessarily all the resources at hand and is like most of the most of the fathers is working out of his head oh i am being charitable david game respects okay. game <laughs> excellent yeah anyway it, it's just interesting that the what he does with angels it, it it's it's got some resemblances to the stories that i know and the ways uh the ways that the the data has been assembled that i've ha had access to um, but also includes some things uh, that uh, that I didn't grow up hearing. Um, you know, my books about the flood had didn't have Nephilim in them. <laughs> <laughs> so Aronofsky didn't write your books? No, no, he didn't write mine. I mean, skipping a lot of really, really, really interesting material. Um, Irenaeus's account of Christ's incarnation and the work of redemption. Uh, really closely rem re mirror his version of creation and fall, uh, which is something that we should expect because it's there in Paul. And I mean, since we've already uh, we've already alluded to him, it's also sort of there in Milton. Um, we would we should expect it. But do you see anything in the way that he talks about creation or about incarnation and redemption, paralleling it with creation and fall? Do you see ways in which he's expanding on the Pauline precedent? Oh, to be sure. I mean, in St. Paul's text, I mean, we get, you know, formulations like 
uh, just as sin entered the world through one man, so salvation comes to all through one man, right? Uh, and, you know, Irenaeus certainly seems to be playing on this and adding to it because uh, he points out that, you know, as uh, sin comes into the world uh, because of virgins, uh, so it is a virgin born to a virgin that brings salvation to humankind. Uh, just as, you know, there is a tree of disobedience in the garden, so there is a tree of obedience, namely the cross, uh, that is, you know, the site of salvation. So, I mean, he is uh, taking Paul's parallelism and, if you will, building the chiasmus outward uh, so that we don't just have the very compact chiasmus that we get in Paul's rhetoric, uh, but we also get, you know, a, a building up of images, uh, you know, before and after on both sides. I also think it's fascinating that, uh, you know, when he appropriates, you know, one of Jesus's parables, uh, specifically the parable of the insane shepherd, uh, the one where the shepherd leaves 99 sheep out in the wilderness <laughs> so that he can chase one of them. Uh, I always like to preach that one because I say, now you've probably been told that, you know, he left the other sheep with another shepherd or, you know, took them back into town before he chased the one. No, he didn't. The parable that Jesus actually spoke is he left them in the wilderness. Uh, that what we're supposed to gather from this is that God <laughs> has gone nuts. And that's the good news. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm preaching there, David, instead of uh, answering your question. Uh, but what I find fascinating there is where I have usually seen commentaries refer to the one sheep as the sinner and the 99 sheep as the righteous, or for those with a little bit more of a historical bent, the one sheep as Israel, the 99 sheep as the other ethne, right, or the Gentiles, this one makes the 99 sheep the angels that did not rebel and makes the one sheep all of humankind, which I, I thought, I mean, you know, again, uh, I love, you know, seeing new to me uh, ways to interpret, you know, biblical text. I mean, this one definitely uh, just leap, leapt out at me in that respect. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like I just hit about seven parallels, so I should stop there because that's a good Bible number. Uh, do you want to uh, <laughs> go beyond that, David? I mean, virgins, uh, the, the, the virgin uh, man and woman leading to death, virgin man and woman leading to life, but also the and idea... by the way, the fact that he makes Adam and Eve children, very yes. different from Milton. <laughs> yes, very, very different. <laughs> because Milton. in Milton, you get sex scenes in Eden. I mean, really, really kind of gauzy and, you know... Not terribly clear ones, but you they know. make my students awful uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, okay, that's fair. It's fair point. Um, yeah. So it's not just them, but also he talks about uh, the earth. Uh, he describes the earth as being a virgin, um, and so uh, Adam being made from the dust of the new virgin earth. Um, he parallels with. Christ being uh, being conceived and born uh, by uh, the Virgin Woman, so that so that Mary, um, the Virgin Mary, becomes not only a parallel to Eve, but also a parallel to the Earth. Yep, yep. I I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting. Also, um, I am absolutely in love with his phrase, "the tree of obedience." Yeah, yeah. That's a uh... 
that, that someone with an acoustic guitar somewhere needs to start writing that praise song. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Towards the end, he deals with uh, the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic Law. I mean, a lot of the demonstration of the apostolic uh, preaching is Irenaeus working through the Pentateuch, but also the other books of history to a somewhat lesser extent, and a lot with the prophets. Um, he kind of glosses over the books of kings, of, you know, he leaps over those. He's mostly interested in the Pentateuch and in the prophets. Yeah, don't, don't uh, look for commentaries on Ezra here. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's almost as if he expects that the Pentateuch and the prophets are going to give you enough material to be able to read the other books. Or, I mean, it could be that in the congregation that he was serving, that's the text that they had. Maybe so. Maybe he's glo he's glossing he's glossing the books he has readiest access to. Um, Irenaeus's treatment of the relationship of the Christian to the Mosaic Law is interesting, given how much time he spent in the Pentateuch. Uh, and it's a it's an interesting little passage uh, towards the end, um, especially uh, paragraphs ninety five and ninety six. Uh, he insists that we need no law as a tutor, but still is very interested in making sure that we are not um, profligate libertines, I guess. So walk us through that. Yeah, so the way that he squares that circle uh, is that, you know, first of all, he focuses on the commandments from the Pentateuch that appear in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which is why, you know, I'm inclined to say it might be that he had access to a Genesis text, an Isaiah text, an Psalmic text, but maybe not an Exodus text. Maybe he had heard of Exodus, but he had not actually heard Exodus. This is very possible in the second century. Uh, these scrolls don't necessarily travel around uh, as a canon, right? I mean, that's something that is still in play, disputed. Uh, remind me, David, and I, and I should have looked this up before we recorded. Um, I, my gut tells me that Irenaeus comes before Marcion, but is that right? I think. We'll tell you what. Look that up while while case? I'm talking. My yeah, next little I'm gonna bit. look that one up. I'll 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 dive in. You yeah. Proceed. So you know, Irenaeus's focus, like I said is on the uh, commandments that appear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And the way that he uh, deals with it uh, is pretty different if you are accustomed, as I am, uh, to hearing, you know, modern Protestant era interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the most famous one being the sort of, you know, Lutheran version that the Sermon on the Mount actually takes the Mosaic Law, which we were all breaking anyway, and turns the volume up so that we really feel really wretched uh, about our, you know, prospects of keeping the law so that, you know, we can get the uh, crucifixion and resurrection and therefore grace can save us where the law can't. Instead, what Irenaeus does, and I find this fascinating philosophically, is he says that the transformation of the soul that happens with our baptism and with our discipleship uh, doesn't mean that, you know, the content of the written law does not, you know, relate to us anymore, uh, but rather it negates the need for a written law. Uh, so, you know, there's no need to say an eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, 
because our soul is transformed so that we do not look on other human beings as our enemies. We don't have, we don't need the written law. Do not commit adultery uh, because our desires have been transformed so that we do not desire our neighbor's wife. Do not kill. We don't need the written law because our desire to murder our neighbor goes away. Um, now, one other interesting thing here, and I, and I just found this fascinating, uh, is he makes this this wonderful parallel uh, between Moses coming down from receiving the commandments and Israel has turned to Baal, uh, which isn't really true. It's the golden calf, and that's not the same as Baal, but it's Irenaeus. We're running with it. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, when the people are offered the choice to free Jesus or to free uh, Barabbas, they choose Barabbas, right? And he says that in both of these cases, uh, you know, this is an indication that uh, the untransformed soul is always going to choose the false God, the false Messiah, whatever is false. Uh, there has to be that transformation that comes through the activity of the spirit, you know, for that to happen. So, uh, David, uh, what about Marcion? Marcion was an older contemporary of Irenaeus. So, oh, fascinating. Okay, um, okay. If I, he might actually get a name reference in uh, against heresies. Okay, um, very good. I can't. I can't remember clearly. Uh, Valentinian and and his ilk are certainly um, the ones who are most squarely in Irenaeus's sights. But he might. He might have some hat tips at Marcion too. Okay, um, fair enough, fair enough. Especially his, uh, Irenaeus's, uh emphasis on the fourfold gospel is something that would be made in the face of Marcionism. Yes, that makes sense. That which makes had sense. a truncated Luke. Yep. Um, and even if, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, I, I think at the at the very end of of the of the text, there may be a uh, an an index of of biblical texts that are quoted or alluded to i haven't i don't i don't have that right in front of me um but even even if he may not um directly quote from the pentateuch he nonetheless knows of the pentateuch and regards it he, he's very very concerned that we regard the god of the pentateuch as our god Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't and, want to give the, any contrary impression yeah. there. Like I said, I, I, I was making a speculation about his mm -hmm. working library and not about the books that he recognized. Right. Right. So, you know, the, it, and that, well, it would be in the face of the Gnostics who see a God above um, the creator God depicted in the Old Testament. But that is something that the Gnostics have in common with Marcion as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I found myself as I was reading this particular section thinking a lot of our discussions of uh of Martin Luther on the freedom of the Christian uh and the the that that role of love as fulfilling the law. Um but that was also something that uh you you find in many medieval and later medieval uh theologians, this emphasis on uh, the righteousness that Christ demands being the one that must necessarily flow from a right love of God and a right love of neighbor. Certainly, certainly. And I mean, it's that, it's, it's that complex of, you know, St. Paul insisting on a continuation of a basically Jewish morality 
but then, you know, a sense that, you know, Christ has somehow moved, either moved beyond or superseded or in some way has altered the relationship of the faithful to the temple, right? Uh, You know, that gives us that medieval distinction that I remember mainly from Thomas Aquinas, but I feel like it was in other texts as well between the moral and the ceremonial law. Right. Well, in the end, he wraps up his summary of apostolic teaching with, uh, we should have expected it, a threefold heuristic based on uh, the, the, the Trinitarian or threefold baptismal formula uh, for distinguishing the faithful church, uh, the church that has preserved the truth and uh, preserved the faith entire, uh, from heretics. So since orthodoxy, what constitutes orthodoxy, is something that we've been talking about since the very beginning of the Christian Humanist Podcast, what doctrines does Irenaeus put at the center, at the bullseye? Well, if you uh, heard that there's a threefold uh, you know, doctrine and you guess that it might be mapped onto the Father and the Son and the Spirit, good for you. Uh, you know, for Irenaeus, uh, you know, the father doctrine is that, you know, God, the father is the creator of all things seen and unseen. Uh, and so any doctrine that holds that, you know, the God of the old Testament is a sub creator, a demiurge, uh, the wicked creator of the dirty material world, as opposed to the good creator of the spiritual realm, throw it out. Uh, there is one God who created, as I said, all things seen and unseen, and I hope you know that I didn't uh, just invent that. Uh, There is a sun, and, you know, the mark here is that the sun is incarnate. Uh, So again, you know, you can see that Irenaeus, even as he is not writing specifically against heresies in this text, still has uh, a strong concern to distinguish Christian worship from Gnostic philosophy. Uh, You know, the sun is in fact incarnate. Uh, you know, the sun takes on real human nature, a real human body. Uh, and, you know, anyone who denies that uh, is Antichrist, to uh, paraphrase, paraphrase 1 John. Uh, and then finally, the spirit. Uh, this, is what, this, is, this was the interesting one to me because he shifts from true propositions uh, you know, which is his focus when he talks about faith, uh, to worship practices. And, and, you know, like I said, this, uh, really drew my attention because the spirit, uh, as the gift giver, the way that he, uh, distinguishes, you know, the true assemblies of Christ from the false, uh, is that the true assemblies of Christ have spiritual gifts. So, you know, what this reminds me of more than anything is the, the later writer, uh, Tertullian in his, uh, Apologia, right? Uh, where it finishes is not that, you know, if you really want to see the fruit of, you know, the superiority and the supremacy of Christ, you know, look to the, you know, the, the good thoughts that we have, or even the charity that we have towards orphans, or, you know, any of those things that in the 21st century we might expect. Instead, Tertullian says, well, you know, let's go down to one of your pagan temples and find someone who's demon-possessed, and see who can cast the demon out, sucker. And, you know, that, that seems to be the kind of thing that Irenaeus is pointing to here. You know, if you've got gifts of healing, 
uh, you know, I, I would guess probably gifts of glossolalia, speaking in tongues, uh, then those are the true assemblies and the ones that don't aren't. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's about what you'd expect given the later developments in creedal orthodoxy. The creeds, of course, are, are organized around the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here, the uh, rule of faith uh, that, you know, governs the uh, worship of God in Christ is also, you know, organized according to Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So, uh, I hope that was the organizational scheme you're looking for, David. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's it's pretty clear because he, I, what I one of the things I love about Irenaeus is that he wants to make sure in this text that everything he has to tell you slides in neatly with the very first thing that you professed as a baptized Christian. Right, right. He wants it all to just sort of neatly notch into place with the the most basic elements of your catechesis and that most basic and first profession. Um, one of the things I find really interesting, especially about that last point, uh, is that he doesn't emphasize as this uh, this sort of evidence of of the spirit the things that he's already assigned to the Holy Spirit earlier in the text. Namely, it is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us Son, who reveals to us Father. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, brings us to life in baptism, and so creates um, that illumination of soul that will recognize the truth and believe it. And then in his discussion of law, you know, the work of the Spirit in love in our heart to lead us to follow, uh, to follow the commands of the law without the commands. Like, these are things that he's already developed as this is what this is what the Spirit is doing, and then he gets to the very end and is like, oh yeah, there's also these prophecies. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that seems to be <laughs> relatively continuous with what we see in St. Paul's letters, right? Or, yes. for that matter, what we see in the Didache, right? Where you've got, you know, regulations about if someone is traveling and comes to the assembly with a prophecy, here are the rules governing, you know, how you welcome that person. Yeah, it, it just it, it gives you this this image of 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 a church in which uh, the life might be very different from what many of us experience uh, in our own uh, in our own worshiping communities uh, on a, any given Lord's Day. Well, and the distinction that he makes between you know the the rightly worshiping congregations and the wrongly worshiping congregations are matters of teaching to be sure. Uh, but they are also a matter of, you know, the presence of these prophecies, right? So, uh, once again, I mean, you know, the, this is a, a nice exercise in seeing, as you just noted, uh, how alien these sorts of things can be if we study them closely. Yeah. Well, was there anything else in here? I've 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 focused on the things that stuck out to me that were the the most important um, my most important takeaways uh, from from this text. But is there anything in there that uh, grabbed hold of your attention that uh, we've we've glossed over? 
Well, first of all, I, I didn't do the philology on this. I've already confessed that, listeners. So if we have classicists out there or patristic scholars, feel free to write in and tell me how wrong I am about this hunch. Uh, but, you know, the fact that it is the demonstration of the Christian faith is reminiscent for me uh, of Aristotle's rhetoric. So, I mean, this is a procession from first principles through commonplaces uh, into a, a sort of spiritual enthymeme. Uh, and you can really see that play out because uh, it has, you know, in a very real sense, the parts of a classical narrative. It has a long narratio uh, of the biblical witness. Uh, it has, you know, uh, answers to objections. Uh, it has, you know, basically a, a call to action at the end. Uh, it is, I mean, in a lot of ways, a, a, you know, a classical demonstration oratory. I will say that the narratio is fascinating to me because uh, even if we're talking about, you know, a, uh, a bishop who has, you know, Genesis, but maybe not Exodus, let's say that that's true, we still get a focus on Genesis 1 through 11 that lasts about eight pages. And then to get from the Tower of Babel to Moses takes about a page. And then to get from Moses to Jesus takes about half a page. Uh, so one of the fascinating things about this is that there's a strong focus on the sort of cosmic narratives and then on the redemption of the church without a whole lot of focus on what Israel might have been between Moses and Jesus. Uh, so it's interesting. Again, I'm not pointing that up to say that this is uh, deficient, much less heretical, but it is a different kind of a focus than, you know, someone like me who has, you know, learned to interpret the Bible from writers like N.T. Wright and Elizabeth Johnson and Walter Brueggemann, you know, my focus is, you know, just incessantly on Israel because of, you know, a, a, a concern that I keep things historical, a concern that I keep things particular. Those aren't Irenaeus' concerns, so he doesn't go there. Another interesting yeah. thing, David, that I, that I, I want to bring up and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you is that, you know, as, as often is the case when we read a patristic text together, I'm struck by the biblical hermeneutics. And you can see here that this is a Christian pastor who has not yet uh, inherited, I'm going to put it that way, the distinction between literal and allegorical narratives that we get in Plato's Phaedrus and that later on we see in writers like Origen and Augustine, and of course then later medieval writers like Thomas and Dante and so on and so forth. Uh, for him, you know, the what I would call the allegorical sense of a lot of these passages simply is what they say. Uh, so again, you know, uh, I think it is fascinating because it reminds us of the contingency of the questions that we bring to a text, right? For him... It's simply not important to distinguish between literal, allegorical, so on and so forth, in the way that it is for Origen or Augustine. So, do you want to comment on any of that, David, or do you want to bring up your own uh, other bits, or how do you want to proceed, sir? Just a hat tip towards uh, Profiles interview that I did uh, with uh, a gentleman on um, medieval hermeneutics, uh, medieval uh, medieval Bible interpretation, which has a really good um, introduction to patristic Bible interpretation at the beginning. Um, Irenaeus um, might not be 
working necessarily within the nicely defined categories that were set later, um, particularly by folks like Origin. Um, but many of many of the moves that he's making were ones that later later got names. But here, yeah, absolutely, it's, absolutely, here it's all kind of um, you know kind of muddled in there together. Um, he's hustling. He's hustling. Yep. Uh, the the other thing I, I find it really interesting the the way that he fast forwards across almost the entire history of Israel, even if it's, even as it's depicted in the canon, just woof, right over it. Um, much less attention to things like um, the the post-exilic Second Temple period, things like that. Um, and yet, he, he very clearly seems to have inherited ideas that grew out of that culture that he doesn't seem to be interested in discussing or addressing or maybe aware of, not sure. Um, things like uh, traditions surrounding um, the Watchers and the Nephilim. Um, right, right. Things, things like that, which which are um, not explicitly canonical, but are but are developed, um, especially in that Second Temple period, and show up in in things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, seem to be informing the way that he reads Genesis, such that he can't tell it apart from Genesis. Um, anyway, it, it's it's really interesting. Right, or at the very least, I mean, he doesn't seem to have any reservations about letting first Enoch interpret Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's all that I had. And yeah, that's our conversation about, uh, Irenaeus's demonstration of the apostolic preaching and enormously interesting, uh, and I think, uh, rewarding, uh, enlightening, um, uh, in some in some places uh, encouraging and highly quotable, and in some places uh, perplexing, perplexing and frustratingly enigmatic <laughs> patristic work. But very good. I, I think I just summed up patristics in general, right? That, that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, any idea what we're doing next week? I do. We're going to go from the second century BC to this month. Uh, David Brooks has a uh, an article in this month's Atlantic called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Uh, it's a really interesting little uh, suggestion about, you know, the way that we talk about uh, cultural criticism, the way that we talk about society, uh, and we're going to talk about it next week. Very interesting. Well, in the meanwhile, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. If you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it in the comments to the show notes for this episode on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can post them on our Facebook wall, or you can follow us on uh, Twitter, CH Radio Network is our handle there. Also, all three of the regular hosts, Michael Farmer, Nathan Gilmore, and me, David Grubbs, we're also on Twitter under various other handles as well. Poke about and you'll find us. In the meanwhile, on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, I bid you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Radio Network's press liaison is Christian Philip, uh, Kristen Philippic, and 
I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, let your faith be stronger.